Did you open us a prayer this morning, Tim? Tim? Yep. Yes. Thank you. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to come to this church and to this class. And Lord, I just thank you so much for it and, and what I've gotten out of it. And Lord, we just thank you for Dave and we ask you to bless him today. And speak to us, Lord, not only from Samuel, but also on what we should be doing this week. Um, just want to say that um, in case anybody doesn't know, it is Tim's birthday today. Oh, it is. Well, happy birthday! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do we have to say? That's why I was picked tonight. start out this morning by taking a look at uh, Habakkuk chapter 3. Yeah, we're studying 1 Samuel, but I thought we'd start out in Habakkuk. So I'll let you look for a minute. Habakkuk chapter 3. Does anybody know the story of Habakkuk? Habakkuk was uh, a prophet in the time that uh, God was about ready to bring judgment by, by means of the Babylonians on uh, Judea. And uh, he asked God some very pointed questions, like, how can you use evil uh, to accomplish good, is one of the questions. And, uh, and he really wrestles with this because uh, he's a man that... Uh, lives by faith. In fact, this is where we get the quote that Paul uses um, in chapter 2, verse 4. It says, the righteous will live by his faith. Um, so we understand that Habakkuk was a man, he was asking honest questions of God, looking at the world around him, saying, man, this is totally messed up. My paraphrase. And uh, how can you possibly be bringing good out of this and, and even using the evil to accomplish good? And he gets to the end of, uh, of his discourse, and uh, you look at Habakkuk chapter 3. We'll read the last three verses, 17, 18, and 19. You've probably heard these before. Has everybody found Habakkuk? Somebody like to read those last three verses? Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. For the director of music on my stringed instruments. So we understood that, understand from this, is that Habakkuk was a man uh, of worship and uh, faithfulness and trust in the Lord uh, in the face of everything going wrong. And this is one of the characteristics of a, a person after God's heart. And so I thought we would start there this morning because uh, everything's about ready to go wrong for David. And that there's nothing that he has particularly done uh, to offend King Saul. Um, but it seems like the whole world at, at one point is going to turn against him. And, uh, and so it would be very easy to lose faith in God in those times. And, I, and the reason I picked that particular passage is because I think there's a lot messed up in the world today. And uh, as we look at applying some of these principles from Samuel, um, I think we could easily ask God the same kind of questions. 
and ultimately we need to have uh, the same response, which is no matter what it is that God's doing that we don't understand, we need to trust him and uh, trust him through the good and through the bad. So let's take a look. We were in, uh, does anybody remember where we were, where we left off last week? 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 18. And what happened in 1 Samuel 18? All kinds of things happened. Yeah. Yep, we see uh, that uh, in chapter 17, uh, young David had taken on the enemy of God's people, um, and he took on one in particular, a guy named Goliath, and, uh, and he came away victorious. And we understand the difference in, uh, what was one of the major differences, I should, I should, rather than pointing it out, I'll ask, what was one of the major differences between Saul's response and David's response? Uh, in this whole episode of the story of Goliath being slain. Where was Saul? I didn't understand. <laughs> he, was, he was afraid. He was, he, was, he was afraid, along with all of the other uh, uh, Hebrew children that were looking at the circumstances in front of him, which was this huge, massive guy that was challenging them and taunting their God. And uh, he wasn't willing to go out in battle, even though uh, he was probably the most qualified to do so. He was the king, he was the tallest, um, but instead he was hiding out. And then little David shows up, uh, and he's trying to rally people saying, what's this guy saying? You know, he's taunting our God. And uh, he ends up going up against Goliath. And in the end, um, when David uh, kills Goliath, or God kills Goliath using David, is probably a more accurate way of, of saying this. Um, David then takes Goliath's uh, sword, possibly his other weapons, and he takes them to a tent. And we had some discussion about the tent. And he also takes Goliath's head, and he takes it and posts it outside the, the city of Jebus, which was uh, later to become Jerusalem. And, uh, and basically he was making a declaration about what God had done and what God was going to continue to do. And Saul, in that whole process, was still hiding out. He saw someone that distinguished themselves and wanted to recruit them as one of his mighty men so that he could go before Saul and protect him. That's basically the picture that you get of Saul. Saul's continuing, has unchanged in his heart, continuing to, to hide and, and be the hindmost rather than the foremost as a king, whereas David is actually going out and uh, fighting uh, the way that God's spirit is moving him. And one of the themes that you see repeated throughout uh, chapter 18 says this three times. It says, for the Lord was with him, David, uh, but had departed from Saul. I read that in verse 12, verse 14, um, and verse 28. And we, so anytime you see something repeated, it's, it's important to pay attention to. So David had gone and, and killed the Philistine, and, uh, and then we start hearing about how uh, the, um, the heart of the people was turning towards David and that they were turning away from Saul. And it's not that they had necessarily abandoned Saul as king, it's just they recognized that David was doing something very significant in God's economy, that he had been uh, put forth as a champion for God's people. And so people rallied around him. And what we saw as we went through chapter 18, where did the allegiance start for David? I heard it. Jonathan. So Jonathan, who was the, uh, the king-to-be, he was the prince, and when Saul ceased to be king, he would have, uh, according to the way of succession of kings in, in, among the Gentiles, he would have become the king. So he was the, the king-to-be, uh, and he makes a covenant with David and promises his allegiance or his servitude to David. And, and what does he do in the process of, of making that covenant? Does anybody remember? Using his robe and, and the 
trappings, whatever. Right. Indicated his position. Right. He gives him his robe, which is a very significant indicator of his position. He gives him his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So he's saying, everything that I have is yours. I am your servant. I am here to serve you and to serve God's people under your leadership. That's a very significant change in allegiance. Because we know that Jonathan was also a man after God's heart. He was one that was moved by the Spirit of God to take on God's enemies and uh, uh, questioned uh, in a sense, questioned the authority of his father when his father was making bad decisions, but was willing to take whatever judgment that God put on his life for when he would make a decision, um, he was willing to, to stand behind that. And if it meant his death, he would go to his death. And so we understand Jonathan was, was certainly a man much like David as far as his heart. Um, we also saw that the, the people started turning their allegiance towards David. They recognized that he was a, 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 de, a defender of them and, uh, and a, uh, one that God had ordained in this, uh, in this role. And that when David came back from, uh, from fighting for Saul, King Saul, we read in chapter uh, 7, it says, The women sang and played, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. So they were attributing to David uh, a massive victory uh, for God and his people. And uh, when Saul heard this, it says he became very angry. It displeased him. They've ascribed to David tens of thousands, but to me, they've only ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So what's happening in Saul's heart there? Jealousy. Jealousy and greed. Jealousy and greed. So, uh, what is jealousy? And is it bad? Oh, yeah. Uh, thinking someone else is, is infringing on your territory and, and possibly get away with it. So, it's bad because you're thinking that someone else may possibly be infringing on your territory and might get away with it. That is one of the things we see almost used universally in the vast majority of leaders. They are far more concerned about their personal position and fortune than they are anything to do with the people. Almost in Syria right. is a very good example of that. So what you've described is a way of the world and world leaders um, which <coughs> God warned against. He says... If you want a king that's like the kings of the nations around you, this is what's going to happen. And sure enough, you see this kind of leadership raise up, uh, a jealous leadership. But it also says in the Bible that God is jealous. Is it bad when God is jealous? God is jealous for an entirely different reason. Ah, God's jealous for an entirely different reason. Expand on that. Well, he is, he is, is he has... A world, a world view that is beneficial for all of us. And when that is thwarted, threatened, gone against, whatever, it, it angers him because basically we're hurting ourselves. And in God's love, he wants to see the best for us. And we invariably go the other way. Almost. So in Saul's jealousy... Um, I'm going to try and paraphrase what you said. <laughs> yeah. and then, and then you guys can correct me. Uh, in Saul's jealousy, the focus of Saul's heart was on himself and what he was potentially going to lose. And in God's jealousy, his focus is on his people and their welfare and how they could be destroyed. Not what God would lose, but how they could be injured or harmed. And so we see a difference in the, the perspective or the focus. In one instance, jealousy, if it's focused inward on the self, is destructive. But if it's focused outward, like love, it's very beneficial. Can be. It can be. So jealousy is not necessarily bad. So God could be jealous. Saul could have been jealous too. 
David could have been jealous. Sometimes we use the word zealous, like jealous, to indicate that kind of zeal that people will have when they're moved by God's spirit for God's creation and what God is about doing. I, I, I might add that all those emotions were given to us by God and they can all be used productively in the proper situations. But as people are wont to do, they get misused very regularly. Right, and that we understand is, uh, so the statement is, is that um, it's very uh, normal, natural, and according to God's design to have emotions. In fact, we even see that reflected in God himself that uh, we ascribe certain emotions to God, right? Um, and so we're created in his image. We're emotional as well as mindful, as well as uh, operating within uh, a domain. And so we understand that that's good, but something went wrong and there was a change in the heart. Remember when we, we traced back, you know, the origin of the problem is in the heart. That's why it says about David, God was interested in what was going on in his heart, that he had a heart that was after God. Uh, and we see that Saul didn't. Saul had a heart that was after Saul. And that that was the nature of what originally went wrong, is that there was a, a change in affection or uh, loyalty. Um, there's a lot of words that could be used from God and the relationship that Adam had with God and the relationship that Eve had with God to themselves. They looked as to themselves as the judge of good and evil, of what was right and wrong, what was wise, um, and they were jealous of God for withholding that from them. At least that's the lie that was told them. Don't you know that this, but the lie was told to them that if, the day that you eat of this fruit, you'll be like God? that he's been holding something back from you and you, you need to have this, right? So that was the lie that was told. And that was the change that happened in the heart of humanity. So it's not unexpected that everything and every decision from that point forward would be self-focused, including this jealousy, which could be a positive emotion for serving God's people, um, can actually become a negative emotion. And it can actually um, work to... Uh, into bitterness and into destruction of the soul. And that's what we see happening in Saul, is there's both a, a psychological problem that he has, this bitterness of the soul, and there's also a theological problem that he has, an abandonment of God as king. And as he being a servant appointed by God to represent him uh, among the nations and, and to lead the people. And so you see here a change of uh, loyalty of Jonathan. You see a change of loyalty of the people. And you see Saul's response to this. Now David is observing this response because it comes about here, we said, we read uh, in verse 10 of chapter 18. It says, now on the next day an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual. And a spear was in Saul's hand. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. So David had a clue that something was up, right? The time a spear comes at you, you dodge it once, and then you dodge it twice, you know. You know something's going on. Um, so, so David wasn't ignorant that Saul had a problem with him. But David continued to function as God had, had put him into play. Um, and then what we see is that Saul then becomes more devious. If he can't get him with the spear, maybe he can get him by trickery. And so he knows that David um, had the right um, to marry his eldest daughter. So first he sets him up in his army, then he and tries to kill him. That doesn't work. So then he um, tries to, to trick him by um, marriage to his daughter. And the the, uh, the trick there was that he says, okay, um, what I'm going to do, since David can't afford the bride price because he comes from a very humble family, and Saul was from a rich family, and he was the king, 
And uh, so he was the highest in the land. So you have one that's the lowest in the land coming before the highest in the land. And uh, he could, there's no way that David could afford the bride price. And I really like this idea of a bride price because it really shows the, the heart of the groom for the bride. And that um, in our uh, culture, we understand a dowry to be that which the bride brings to the groom. Um, but really, in Middle Eastern culture, it's exactly the opposite. It's the price that the, the groom pays for the bride. And it is very elaborate and extensive in that, uh, uh, for example, if you go to Africa today, they have, they call it cows. How many cows is your bride worth? And, uh, you know, if, if you're only a one or two cow bride, that says something about the groom. It doesn't say something about the bride, it says something about the groom, because the groom is supposed to adorn the bride um, and put jewelry on her and dress her and then put on a hoedown for her family and the whole community comes. And then ultimately he compensates for the loss of the bride to her family uh, by giving a gift of, of cows. And so that was the same kind of culture that was going on here in the Middle East, that um, the groom would bring a bride price. And David, of course, couldn't bring any bride price. So Saul says, oh, I got the trick. Sure. So what were the three things that Saul promised? He promised fortune. He promised an increase in stature by being his son-in-law, that he would give his daughter in marriage, and that his family would be exempted from taxes. Being exempted from taxes was very important because that means you're like part of the king's family. Right? The king's family doesn't pay taxes. And so those were the three things that were promised. Now, that's right. Which one of those three, let alone all three, did David get? None of them. He got to play a harp and had spears thrown at him. That's right. So uh, Saul was not a, uh, a person of his word to begin with. And then he says, okay, I've decided to change my mind. You can actually have my daughter in marriage. But the trick is, is you've you got to bring 104 skins of the Philistines. And he was thinking, you know, to get uh, into a battle situation where you're up that close um, in battle, that as the spoils of the battle, you can take the foreskins of those that you've slain, you're putting yourself in great risk, and you're probably going to be killed. Because the Philistines, remember, they were the iron workers. They had all the weapons. They were the, they were the big guys on the block. And he's thinking, you know, I'll put David out there, and there's no way he can fulfill this bride price. He'll get killed. David not only meets the bride price, he doubles it. That's pretty significant. And he does this um, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, he desires to please the king because he understands that Saul was God's chosen leader of the people, and he is going to be faithful to him even when Saul is not faithful back. So Saul didn't fulfill any of his part of the deal, and David fulfills plus everything on his side as far as servitude. And he also recognizes that Michal, Saul's daughter, actually cared about him, that it wasn't just totally a ploy. Do you think that because this is in the Bible that God approved of 200 men dying for a bride price? Hmm. Good question. Um, did God approve of, of killing people in order for David to be approved uh, in Saul's sight? Well, more so just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that that was necessarily God's will. Perhaps that 200, I mean, we, right. we try to evangelize people and save lives. Right. It just seems, I mean, I don't think it sounds good to read it. It, it, there are many, many uh, things in the Bible that we don't understand. One of them, for example, was just a few pages back when God instructed Saul to wipe out the Amalekites. He said, I want you to kill every man, woman, child, all the livestock. This is scorched earth policy. I want nothing left but the black of the land after you burned it. And, uh, and we asked ourselves, man, is, is God really like that? Would he actually... Um, command that kind of violence um, and yet we read it that's just one example um, wouldn't that fall in I mean God was against the Philistines anyway because of mm -hmm. the evil within that 
group of people. Mm -hmm. And this whole thing was war against the Philistines, which was obviously he sent David out against the Philistines numerous times. Right. And it isn't, I don't see a great deal of difference between that and when the, when the Israelites took over Canaan. Uh, their evil had reached a point where God wanted to destroy them because of their evil. And I, right. I'm not sure that the Philistines don't fall into this, and uh, that whole thing could be part of that philosophy. I don't, I don't think he would send David out to murder innocent people just for... Right. We're going to read some very hard things uh, when it comes to what God uh, commands uh, his servants to do from time to time. Sean? Up until this point, the war with the Philistines has been defensive only. And today there's people who say that government should only use war defensively. Right. That to be offensive in war is always evil. Well, what Saul was doing here was making David the point in being offensive, in going against the Philistines. That's going to mark him as the Philistines are going to want to kill him. Right. What's funny, it had the opposite effect. Right. Okay, but the, the whole point is, is it proper to do an offensive war against your enemies? Right. And, and that's the big issue here. And it's we, not that people died for right. these guys were at war anyway. Right. The, the difference was they always stayed defensive. Where now they're going to be offensive. Right. And and uh, it's very important to look at these different nuances. There was uh, very early on in the church when we came to understand what Christ had done. Uh, the church fathers um, wrestled with this issue: Is there ever uh, a just war? Right. This goes all the way back to 400 A.D. when there were major uh, discussions about this and major papers and position papers written by the church on can you be a just uh, aggressor, um, offensive, uh, and can you be just in defense? Like if somebody comes and breaks down your door, is it uh, just for you to take their life to defend your family? So that would be a defensive position. What about a position where you know somebody is coming to break down your door, maybe they're building a nuclear arm, and they've declared, as soon as I finish this, I'm going to come and I'm going to drop this on you. And now you have a, uh, a choice to make. Do I respond defensively when they drop the bomb, or do I act preemptively and, as an aggressor, go in and destroy their capability to make a bomb? This is going on today. This is Iran and, and Israel, right? Um, so we, we see that these are tough questions. Is there ever a time that, that God would uh, command aggression or offense um, in order to defend life? That's really the argument of the just war. And uh, we see that, indeed, that happens. For example... Uh, the war against the Amalekites. We understand that when God commanded the people to go into the land, he said, now I want you to remove them all. And the reason why I want you to remove them all is because they have false gods. And those false gods are very um, uh, attractive. Right? It's the way of the world. And people will naturally, because of the corruption of sin, want to fall into that way of the world. So we want you to be separate and we want you to take those gods out completely and occupy the land as God's people with the true and living God. So that meant that they were commanded to go in, Joshua was commanded to go in and remove these people and not just come in and gather them up and then say, okay, we're going to export you to camps over in Syria. He was commanded to actually destroy them. And that's what happened with the Amalekites. They were commanded to actually destroy them. And uh, we have to understand the nature of sin and the nature of that destruction uh, to get a better handle on this. One, the nature of sin is, is that it uh, corrupts completely. Um, it's like, uh, the, now, the best analogy that I can come up with today is cancer. You have a naturally healthy cell that goes berserk and starts reproducing itself uncontrolled to the point where it starts invading other systems within your body. Left unchecked, it will destroy you. 
It will kill you. And the only solution for that is to completely remove it. So we take all sorts of aim at destroying cancerous cells. First, we want to know where they come from. Then we shoot chemical bombs at them. We shoot electron bombs at them, right? And then we cut them out. We remove them because that's going to kill you. Is that fair to that cell? Right? It's just doing what it was doing. It's just reproducing, right? Um, that's an excellent analogy. So that's what God commands. He says, you know, sin can have absolutely no place in my kingdom because it is so corruptive that it will ultimately bring death everywhere. So in order to bring life, I have to take sin out. And that's what he said. And we get these small pictures of that commanded throughout the Bible. And that's what I started with Habakkuk. It's like, okay, God was bringing the Babylonians to bring uh, life to the Judeans who had completely lost their focus on God. They had probably one of the best, most clear prophets in their midst, Jeremiah, who laid it right out for them. He said, this is what God's heart is. This is what your heart is. This is what's happening. Please return. And he recognized that they weren't going to return without God's intervention. But when God intervened, he would intervene in such a way that he would actually change the hearts of the people. But it required that they be taken away naked with fish hooks in their mouth. That's a horrible thing. And that most of them would be killed. And yet, that would actually save the people. So that's, these are really hard lessons. And when we, we look at Samuel, it is riddled with all sorts of ethical problems like this. Uh, I realize I'm way down the rabbit trail at this point, but we're coming up to another one. In chapter 20, we find um, where there is a, uh, a deliberate deception of Saul by his daughter. She lies to him to save the life of David. Is uh, not telling the truth ever okay? Because we understand in the Ten Commandments, God says, don't bear false witness. Now, the context there is a context of uh, a legal scene, a courtroom. You don't go against your neighbor um, when he's making uh, a claim and lie in order to defeat his claim, if it's true. Um, but we've taken that and we've expanded that to there is no instance where you should ever tell a lie. A lie is a lie. A lie is a lie is a lie. Now, let's go back to the greatest ethical uh, playground of our time, World War II. And there was a very intentional um, action being taken to destroy a people group, a number of people groups. And there were those that found themselves in a position where they wanted to preserve God's people and the life that God was bringing into the world, and they wanted to shelter these people that were being hunted down, the Jews. And so they actually got into positions where they had to lie. The classic example is Corey Tendum. And that her sister said, no, a lie is a lie is a lie. God will preserve um, his children in spite of me telling the truth and having them being taken by the Germans. That actually happened, where her sister, Corey's sister, uh, in a, a public situation, was asked a question, is this person a Jew? And she responded, yes, this person is a Jew. They were taken captive, and they were um, brought to a prison, and that they were going to be extradited to Germany and then off to whatever concentration camp, them and their family. turned out that this Jewish woman that was exposed um, was actually uh, part of a group of, I think it was 29 prisoners that escaped before they ever got shipped off. So she survived. And Corey Tendum then had to, had to wrestle with this question, okay, I'm sitting here telling a lie to save these people. And my sister told the truth, and they were saved anyway. What is the right course of action? 
how many times has a person, though, told the truth in the situation, and they weren't part of a group of 29 that escaped? Well, the other clear example from World War II is Bonhoeffer, who, yeah. here he is a great theologian, great leader in the church, right. and he's in a position in which he can work as a conspirator to kill Hitler. Right. Now, when is it ever right to murder? Well, and that's where Bonhoeffer made the statement, because he was asked, is it ever right to act as an aggressor in order to preserve life? And his statement was, it is better to do evil than to be evil. And that he recognized that there was uh, an evil in the world that left unchecked would destroy everything. And that it was uh, better to act in uh, what we would call evil in order to preserve life. Better to do evil than to be evil. It is, and this is part of the study of ethics. Part of the study of ethics is, is that in God's perfect economy, in other words, in heaven, these kind of ethical dilemmas do not exist because sin is not there in heaven. right? But here we live in a fallen world, and we can either deny that sin exists in a particular situation, or we, can, we have a choice. We can do the greater good or the lesser evil. And this is the whole study of ethics. I just summed it up for you in 30 seconds. Um, and it is not easy because what we see as we move through here are a lot of ethical dilemmas. And we see that God will use evil to accomplish good. That he's sending an evil spirit on Saul, for example. It would be worth noting here that when Jesus knew that his time was coming very close and he said he was going to head on down toward Jerusalem, Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, wanted to see him. He, Jesus had every reason to believe that his purposes were not good. And so he said, you tell that fox that I'm going to be here baptizing and preaching for this many days, but, you know, I'm leaving now. <coughs> So he was giving to Herod misinformation so that he could go do what he needed to do. And he said it, it would be totally wrong for a prophet to be killed anywhere but Jerusalem. So he said, you tell Herod this, I'm leaving now. Right. So we have, there's a very powerful instance. Well, the other one, that's a better one than I thought of, but the other one I thought of was Rahab when she... Uh, Yep. Help and and you know is was that a wrong that she did that was unapproved or was did God put that in her head and use it to accomplish His purpose? Right, and we see that from very early on in Genesis, right? What happened with uh, Jacob and Esau? Right, there was deception, and that that was supported by a lie of the mother. The mother said, "Hey, put on this skin and." Uh, let me help you make a, a goat soup, and uh, you're going to pretend to be your brother. And God had ordained ahead of time that those that that's, that's right. That, that was according to God's plan. And the, the classic line that we have in response to that is Joseph, who was thrown in the pit by his brothers, um, was going to be killed, but they thought, well, okay, this is a better way to cover it up. Let's throw him in the hole. And then when uh, uh, they see a, a a slave caravan going by, they say, ah, this is even better. We can profit from this. Let's sell them. They sell them into slavery in Egypt, right? Now, what do we read about Joseph's character? He was a man after God's heart. He's one of these guys that is an exemplar in the Bible that we want to understand what he was thinking, what he was, how he was behaving in the midst of a totally unjust situation. And his faithfulness, it turns out, actually saved the people. And so in the end, his brothers, after their father dies, and they're concerned yeah. that Joseph's going to remember get thrown into the pit. Of course he remembers, right? And he is now the most powerful man in the land. He is the prime minister, second only to the, the pharaoh, the king. And they're thinking, we're dead. We're toast. So let's make up this lie and go to Joseph and tell him how our father, you know, uh, 
wanted us protected and all this stuff. And they come to Joseph and he says, you know, what you did, you meant for evil. But what God did with that was meant for good. And it actually saved a whole peoples. Millions were saved because he got thrown into a pit because they wanted to kill him. So Joseph had the vision to know that what God was doing was more important and more powerful, whether he understood it or not, um, for the redemption of all of humanity, uh, and that he had a, a part in that in being faithful. Yeah, but he lied too. Pardon? He lied too. He lied too. <laughs> and and so that's where we get the that's where we get into some of these problems. It's like, is it ever just to tell a lie? Is it ever just to have a war? Now, before I jump to several hands going up. Um, I'll point out that this has been discussed for a long time, and some of the great fathers, uh, Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, uh, categorized uh, lies into three types. They said there's a humorous lie. When we make up a story, we're actually telling a lie. It's fictional, right? But we do it for humor. Sometimes we do it even with moral content, but it's fictitious. An example of that would be um, the story that Pastor Bob told about Boeing employees stealing the raft. Um, that was told last week, I think, or the week before. If you go to Snopes.com, it'll tell you that, no, this is really an urban legend, right? It didn't really happen. However, and it's one of a, a, a series of very, very old legends. It just gets retold in different ways. And that it has a moral content to it. And that, and that that's a good story. It's a good story, right? So we have humor, right? Then there's another type that is called helpful lying, like Corey Ten Boom did to say. And then there is lying that is hurtful or harmful, that is with malice and is intended to injure, and that that is evil. That's the way the church fathers grouped lying and deception. All of it is a result of a moral dilemma. Right, of ethics, of living in an impure, uh, uh, fallen world. I also want to make one other point, and then I'll jump and be attacked here. Um, <laughs> there is more to God's program of life than this physical body. Jesus said, don't worry about the one who can take your life. You need to worry about the one who can throw your soul into hell. That there is more than just what you see right now. And that sometimes the ending of this life is not the worst thing that can happen, even though we might see it as evil. That there's a greater life that's involved. And that that's what God is really concerned about. Is he willing to take out the Amalekites knowing that the whole soul of many peoples is at risk? Yeah, because the, the death of the flesh is not as important as the death of the soul or the spirit. And we see that played out throughout Scripture too. That there's, a, there's more to, to this life and death thing than just the physical body. Not that it's unimportant. Not that murder is, is right or is right. Um, but that there are times when God commands the salvation of the soul um, over the salvation of the physical body. Um, okay, so now several hands went up. <laughs> we'll start back here. Tim. Would, would you indulge a side philosopher on this for a second? <laughs> okay, so my, we're talking about the Ten Commandments in a way, okay? Mm -hmm. not lie, it's not kill. Right. Okay, and I, and I understand those to believe, I understand the interpretation of thou shalt not kill to mean thou shalt not murder. Correct. You know, so there is some justice kind of killing, like if we bring in, you know, we talk about the death penalty and that kind of stuff. That's, right. It's not. So in, in my mind, I've kind of justified some of that. And I'm not saying I haven't done all three kind of lines that I have. Um, but the problem that I have with this conversation, I guess, is when you look at Israel and the Arab world, if you will, okay, 
why are the why is the Arab world against Israel? Well, in my view, and if you go all the way back to the to the Crusade, okay, it's about this conflict of uh, religious philosophies. So, so you got the the Muslims saying, okay, we want to be jihadists, which I don't understand everything about this, but essentially they're going to kill the infidels, which includes primarily the Jews and us. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they have a holy book that's telling them, <laughs> in a way, that it's justified to kill the Jews and us. Mm -hmm. We have a holy book <laughs> that says, well, okay, sometimes it's justified to kill you. Okay, this is where I'm struggling. Okay? Right. Because it's like, well, I mean, I believe the Bible. I believe that God is is just and, and above all. And I mean, I, I can't live any other way. But, and I'm not a bleeding heart liberal at all. <laughs> okay? But I don't know how you justify those, you know? I mean, it's like, okay... So if I'm Israel, I want to defend myself. If I'm the U.S., I want to defend myself, and I'm even okay with the wars that we're in, <laughs> okay? But that aside, you have, you know, the, the Muslims in the same kind of a, a religious fervor going after the Israelis and us. So, so then, when you look at the whole thing, it's like, well, wait a minute, this is just everybody after everybody. And, you know, the strongest and the fittest win, and, it, it, you know, so I'm, I'm struggling in that area. Well, well I don't know, I'm struggling what, with what, what, I, mean, what, I believe yeah. this Bible, but uh -huh. on the other hand, it's like, wow, you know, I'm sure the <laughs> Philistines had their, you know, thing when they were going, so what's the point of it all? So, Tim, let me ask you this. Where in this Bible does it say, Tim? Go kill these people. <laughs> <laughs> in your Bible, okay, it does. Right? That's the difference. Well, also, there's timing when it's up to God's spirit you have to listen to, because there's times when he said, go wipe these people out. You know, I mean, good reason for him, because when Saul didn't, years later, that one survivor almost wiped out the entire Jewish population. Right. But then there's times like with Nineveh and Jonah. That was a horrible city, and Jonah didn't want to go there because they were horrible people. They did right. terrible things. And yet God said, go and preach to them. And he saved the entire city, and he cared about them. And he said, don't you care about them? There's all these millions, there's these people and animals, and, and shouldn't you, you know, Jonah, like, care about these? And God cared about those people, and he chose at that time to save them. Right. You know? And so it's like he sees it as we can't. So well, and, and there's a lot, a lot to that story, uh, in that uh, one, God is questioning the compassion and the mercy of uh, of Jonah, and that there's a lesson to be learned for Jonah and for us. Um, he also deferred judgment, um, and so a lot of times people ask the question, "Well, does God change His mind?" And that's the one they'll go to. They'll say, "Well, look what happened here. You know, He said He was going to wipe them out, and then He didn't." And it really ticked Jonah off, you know. Um, <laughs> right? So, uh, so there's a lot packed in that story. And, and the question is, okay, what is God ultimately doing? The, the Ninevites fell. They were destroyed. Um, they just weren't destroyed at that point in time. Also, there was a move from the corporate to the personal. So um, you described a corporate... Um, a corporate attitude. It's kind of like the Hatfield and the McCoys. Two families, right, feuding. And if you ask any of them, why are you feuding? Well, because we've always feuded. We hate those guys, right? And they could probably even cite some specific incidents that kicked it off. In the case of uh, the Arabs and uh, the Jews today, it goes back to Ishmael, right, and Isaac. The child of promise, who was not the first, and the one who was first that should have had the birthright, um, was Ishmael. And he was sent out into the desert to die with his mom. And, uh, you know, God said, don't worry, I got this under control. Now, what are the hearts of these two people? 
Um, that's what God's concerned with. And what happens is, is when you take it from the corporate, the Arab and the Jew, to the personal, and you put them on a desert island together, a Jew and an Arab, and you say, okay, now survive. You both are going to die because this is a harsh environment. Figure it out. At the end of the day, they walk away friends. And this is also one of those great stories we like to tell. It's a redemption story at the personal level where people that were enemies because of a corporate philosophy became allies and friends because of a common heritage that God has given to humanity. Right? So a lot of times when we go from the corporate to the personal, we find out that, no, God is not personally interested in wiping out these Ninevites. He's personally interested in them, their families, their animals. But corporately, he understands that the Assyrian Empire cannot stand and is going to be ultimately judged. And you see both of that in Jonah. Um, and, that, and that's an important distinction to make. Yeah, but I backtrack something that Al said is really not that like my interest. That was that the concept of even the father of Jesus being misrepresented in the Bible. I understood what Al said. He had indicated, from what I heard from the Owls, that uh, there was deception. Said, yeah. Deception. Mm-hmm. That's, that's totally bizarre to me. As I read this, I went back and I read what he said. I don't, I don't see where there was a misrepresentation in there. That would be totally opposed to anything I would understand about Christ. There, there, uh, uh, we could, there are a lot of what we call hard sayings in the Bible that we could pull out. Um, that, that particular one is in that one category, just like uh, was it uh, uh, a couple weeks ago we wrestled with the one about, okay, uh, was Goliath killed with the stone or was he killed with the sword? Did he die twice? Um, and so that's one where uh, I'd like to unpack that with you, but we'll have to do it outside of our remaining five minutes. Um, but, but that is a, a valid concern. How do we interpret this? Is it willful deception? Um, is it a translation or a interpretation issue? Um, how does this fit into the larger picture? Because one of the things that we expect, because as we read through about David, and now I'll get to you, Sean, what happens is, is that David becomes much more successful. Every time he's set up to fail, he trusts in the Lord, and he is blessed. Right? But what we want to understand in this is that there is not always a blessing. That there are times when you're called to be faithful, and bad things happen. Take a look at Jesus. Take a look at Stephen. Take a look at Stephen. And I would say that there are probably many more examples of uh, standing faithful and experiencing evil than there are of standing faithful and experiencing blessing. And so one of the questions we need to ask is, what is God doing here? He's revealing the heart of two men. And that's an important theme of what we want to look at here. Because you've got to remember, this is thematically written. And this is material organized around that theme, not a chronology, not just a, uh, you know, a factual story. It's about teaching us something about the heart that is after God. And that's what we want to see here. Um, okay, now I, I lost track of where I was. Well, Sean? You were going right where, you know, you really cleared that up for me earlier, example, when you define the heart as your will. What is it you really, really, really want? That is your heart. Yep. And we're told to examine ourselves. Now, in these situations, you talked early on about the type and the anti-type that you have in David and Saul. And David, when really pushed, always seeks the Lord and always seeks to keep the covenant, even though he obviously breaks it in areas that he doesn't want to. Right. Saul tries to use the covenant to cover what he really wants for himself. So the heart's exposed. Well, how does that translate to the New Testament? Repeatedly, it says, examine yourself, whether you be in the faith. Right. Because when you do these things, First John says, the, the heart of a man, a man knows, right? In that, you know whether you're lying for your own gain, or whether you're misrepresenting something in order to save others or do what is best. You know yourself right in the Lord 
of course, knows all that. But right. you really cleared that up with you, with the idea of what it means to be after God's heart, to have that will, to have that, you know, what is right in evil. That's what it means. And that's what's, that's what's being clarified in these few short chapters here. And then we're going to see this play out as David repeatedly fails, right? And as he repeatedly doesn't get the result that he expected he would get. What happens, uh, what, is, what does that heart look like when it's tried under these kinds of circumstances? And that's an important thing that we want to want to take a look at. I was just going to say... Um... You know, this passage we read this morning, we talked about God removed his Holy Spirit from Saul. And if you look at Romans chapter 1, it kind of goes back to why God said go and destroy all the people. Right. You know, it says that you know, God's wrath is revealed against unrighteousness. And it talks about Romans 1, how he turns them over to themselves, turns them over to their own desires. Right. And it's almost like Saul was at a point where he could have recognized, just like Jonathan and just like all the people, that David was the guy he could have said, hey, I understand this, I get it. You know, but he was so far down that path, he committed, quote unquote, the unforgivable sin of just hardening his heart against God. And he couldn't have turned back. Right. And so it's the same thing I think with the, the Philistines and the Malachites and and all the rest of those people, they were so far down that path. They had every opportunity, just like Rahab, to look at the Israelites and go, hey, wait a minute, They're, those guys are representing God. She was a prostitute. She was an horrible sin. And these people were, like you said, were, they had chosen to follow other gods, and you know, they were so far down the path that it was just horrible. And, and this is one of the uh, scariest warnings that we read in the New Testament when we're called to examine our heart to make sure that we are not becoming hardened. Um, rather that we have a heart like a child um, in, in discipleship, in that kind of uh, unswerving faith and commitment and uh, wholehearted, humble servitude. Um, and so we're constantly challenged by that and also warned around that as we read some of the harder passages in the New Testament. Um, can I, can I you just one, one, one last one, then. God, we have to remember, also has the advantage of knowing unquestionably yeah. who is going to do what, who is going to turn which way. He has the foreknowledge, right. and he knows whether this person can continue or whether it's, it's no use. Which is, which is one of the reasons, I think, for God... Uh, using the prophetic voice very powerfully in his revelation to us because by him uh, telling us um, parts of how it all is going to work together for good um, it gives us confidence in him when things are really bad and that's where I'd like to end is that I'd like to go back and reread Habakkuk uh, 17 through 19 and we'll look uh, more at some of the, the questions around Saul, the whole issue, some of the ethical issues. And I'm glad you brought the one up this morning because uh, that was uh, uh, very important about you know, killing 200 Philistines for their foreskins. Um, we'll look at the issue of lie. We'll also look at the issue of Saul actually getting into a point of being a, a prophet again and that he falls on his face in prophecies for a day, and it'll take us back to his original calling. And we'll look at the difference of what's happened there. So there are some real challenging parts of the scripture that we're looking at. But I'd like to end with this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive, olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hind's feet and makes me walk on high places. And with that, we'll close in prayer. Lord, uh, thank you for challenging us as we, uh, we read about the ascension of David and the decline of, of Saul and, uh, and 
trying to really wrestle with the issues of the heart that you're revealing to us. Um, Lord, help us also address the ethical issues as we move through, because that's the practical ground that we walk in daily. Um, as we look at the world around us and things that are happening and how we should act, um, Lord, it's all here in this scripture. Um, and help us to understand that. Help us to, to truly get uh, wisdom and uh, discernment in your word that we can be teachers and not just uh, children. And Lord, we, we thank you for this. Lord, we ask for your protection about us as we, uh, we move from here, uh, both to the service this morning and the activities that you've ordained for us this week ahead. Uh, Lord, help us to be faithful uh, and always uh, representing you and your heart and turning to you, even in our failures, Lord, uh, that we would always come back to you and trust that um, whether things are good or bad, we trust in you. Lord, we ask uh, for your blessing upon uh, Pastor Bob this morning as he presents your word. Uh, Lord, we ask that it would be effectual, that the, the Holy Spirit would apply that truth in people's hearts and challenge them. Lord, we thank you for all of this. In your name we pray. Amen.